Welcome to Kobe's podcast. The following is an extract of an interview with Dr. Fatuma. Dr. Fatuma is one of the great and good of evolutionary biology. His achievements include being an emeritus professor of Stony Brook University, being elected a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and writing one of the most popular textbooks on evolution. I hope you enjoy the following discussion on speciation. So this was one of my favourite parts of your evolution module. It's one of uh, my favourite topics. <laughs> great. Um, and I, I, really, I really enjoyed how much it shook what I thought I knew about biology and what I thought about nature. You know, I, th- I felt like before I really understood evolution, I thought it's obvious what a species is. Why do you even need to have a conversation about that? But the more... I learned about the detail, the more confusing it became, and the more I felt like it was quite a, a, not a useless definition, but a definition that had a lot less meaning than I once thought. So can you give a brief outline of, of why speciation and the concept of species isn't as simple as what we once thought? Uh, how many hours do we have for this? <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, let's let's back up here. And um, oh man, there's so much to say. So the first question is, well, what you know, what what might we what might we mean by the word species? And there are really two issues here. One is, what do we want? What is our concept of the of, of a species? What do we want that word to mean? And then secondly, will be what it, once we adopt a definition or a concept, how do we put it into practice with you know when we're dealing with real insects or birds or mammals or whatever. Okay. So there have been a number of different kinds of definitions of you know, what people would like the word species to mean, and I won't go into the whole history of that because there's simply too much to, to go into. At this time, I would say that there are two related but rather different definitions of what a species is, and they are, let me back up actually, even before I do that. Let's just say the, the what is what is the what is the, the, the what is speciation? Okay, whatever a species is, everyone agrees that we have some some evolving lineage through time of organisms that are that we shall say are all members of the same species, and somehow or another that splits into two groups of of organisms that become more and more different from one another. They undergo, you know, there are changes in their DNA, there are changes in various of their characteristics, you know, whether it's coloration or size or, or their song, if you're talking about birds, and they become more and more different from one another. And some of those differences may eventually, some of those genetic differences, some of the differences in song or appearance may eventually result in those two groups of organisms that came from a common ancestor but have become more and more different from one another, those two groups of organisms eventually become sort of mutually incompatible, just as dialects of different human populations eventually become incomprehensible, mutually incomprehensible, and they're kind of incompatible. You know, it's like, well, you know, this one's talking French and this and this one is talking um, Spanish, and they have a lot of trouble understanding one another. They're incompatible. And so, uh, and so, in the case of species, they may get to the point where certain of their characteristics cause them no longer to freely interbreed and exchange genes. Okay. 
And now I should say, and so that's called reproductive isolation. They be, you know, they no longer they no, no longer fully you know fully exchange genes with one another, and that can be cause can be because of several kinds of differences. Okay? One kind of difference would be manifested when members of these two groups mate with one another and are either and either the offspring just plain don't develop at all. Um, or they fail to develop very well and are unhealthy and perhaps die you know, when they're young, or the offspring, the hybrid offspring we would call them, may turn out to be sterile. And these would be because basically they've got different sets of genes that don't know how to, how to get along together, how to talk, how to talk to one another. Um, and so you'll have some genes in one, in one group, in one group that are incompatible with, they just mess things up when you put them together with the other. You know, just imagine, you know, you know, working, working up a business document in which you throw together um, sentences at random from two different languages, and someone who reads both languages might understand what it's about, but someone who doesn't is going to is basically going to throw throw the document away, right? So, okay. So, what is it? So now, so now, this is the process. Okay, there are two common concepts being used today of what of what species are. Okay. One of them is called the phylogenetic species concept. And some friends of mine embrace this. I don't particularly, but some do. And these, you know, and these are people who would say, okay, you have this one lineage which has started to split into two and they're becoming more and more different from one another. And as soon as they as soon as there's any difference between them that I can use to identify which group an individual came from. As soon as there is any difference in the color of their eyes or a particular DNA sequence or anything, whatever, as soon as I can tell them apart reliably, I will call them two different species. Okay. The more traditional, so that's the so-called phylogenetic species concept. The more traditional definition, the one that you would have learned from me when you took my course, is the biological species concept, which is, well, that's all well and good. You have those have these two populations that are on their way to becoming different species, but I'm going to hold off and not call them species until they get to the point where some of the differences between them cause them to become reproductively incompatible, cause them to be reproductively isolated. Either they just won't mate with one another at all because they just look so different and sound so different that the females of one will not accept the males of the other, or even if the even if they do mate together, the offspring are inviable or sterile or bas you know, basically just don't have much of a future. At that point, I would say they're reproductively isolated, and at that point, I will call them different species. Okay. So that's the biological species concept. Okay. So basically, the phylogenetic species concept people want to want to use the, say that they've achieved that two lineages have become different species earlier on in this process, okay? As soon as they made any difference between them, okay? Someone like myself wants to hold out until later in the process where some of those differences really affect the, these two groups of organisms so that they will no longer freely interbreed and exchange genes and form viable hybrids, okay? So that's a matter, so that's a matter of kind of opinion, right? Which, you know, which do I prefer? In practice now, you can see that whether you're a phylogenetic guy or a biological species guy like me or a woman, um, 
whichever your preference is, it's still the case that there's no sharp cutoff in which you can say, okay, at this point, they're different species. You know, this year, you know, last year they were the same species, but this year they're different. Okay, um, because they're because it's a gradual change, a gradually a gradual differentiation. You know, so just as you know, there's no, there's really no objective basis for saying at this particular point this person is a teenager and or an adolescent, and now this person has suddenly become an adult. You know, it it just doesn't work that way. So, what that means is that there's always going to be kind of gray areas, and there are going to be some cases that you can find in which populations are kind of different enough to be called different phylogenetic species, but there's still some individuals you can't classify, so it's still kind of a gray, gray zone. Or there are going to be cases where, well, mostly they're not interbreeding with one another, but yeah, once in a while, or they will hybridize a little bit, and you'll get some genes making their way from one group into the other group. Um, by, by having by having hybrid offspring that then breed back into their into each of the two of the two separate uh, populations, and so that means that for example that although for me the criterion of species is that they either just don't mate to, you know, across with one another at all, or if they do, their offspring have a very poor you know future in terms of survival and reproduction. There are going to be cases in which, well, yeah, they still hybridize a little bit. You know, they still they they still exchange some genes. So I hope. So, in other words, what I'm saying is, there's nothing that's really black and white. There are gray areas. You know, no matter no matter which concept of species you uh, you, you espouse, there you're going to find real cases when you study real birds or insects or plants. You're going to find real cases that are borderline in which you can some kind of flip a coin as to whether you want to call them different species or not. Does the size of that gray area vary depending on the group of organism we're talking about? Because yes, could... yeah. it almost certainly does. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, it almost certainly does. And if you ask a botanist, you know, someone who works on who's you know studied uh, speciation and, and and taxonomy of plants. A botanist would say, yeah, for sure there are gray areas. I mean, I, you know, you name almost any genus of plants, and I'll give you an example of a case of one of these, these gray zone cases, you know. So, um, so in plant, you know, plants are famous for being a lot looser, shall we say, in terms of their, their, their sex lives uh, and their production of, of hybrid offspring um, than animals. Um, we are discovering, uh, so as, as, as I think you, you know that I'm, that I'm quite a serious bird watcher and I'm actually writing a book about bird evolution. And we are discovering in birds more and more and more and more cases in which there's at least a little bit of hybridization between two things that mostly we can tell are different species, um, but, um, but not always. I'll give, you, I'll give you one example that's closer to your home than mine. Uh, I believe you have in South and Central uh, England, uh, you have a crow, an all-black crow, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's called the carrion crow, or at least that's the name I know it by. And uh, and that's the case in you know, throughout Western Europe. You have the carrion crow. If you go to Eastern Europe, you will find more or less the same crow, except it's not entirely black. It has a black head and, and upper breast and black wings and tail, but the body is a paler gray. And that's called the hooded crow. Um, 
they meet and hybridize in a fairly narrow zone that's you know on the order of 20 to 20 miles or so across a narrow zone that extends all the way from northern Italy up to Denmark and then actually continues across Scotland. So if you go to northernmost Scotland, you'll see hooded crows rather than the black carrion crow that's in your area. Okay. And so, so this is a, it's a hybrid zone between these, between these crows in which you find in this rather narrow area, you find birds that are very definitely hybrids. Okay. But by and large, you get away from that zone and at least in terms of the coloration, you don't see any, you don't see birds that look like they're a mixture. It turns out that there are some genes from the hooded crow that have penetrated way far away from the hybrid zone westward into the carrion crow population. And there are some particular genes, you know, if you do DNA studies from the carrion crow that have likewise kind of percolated through into the hooded crow population. But by and large, it looks as if they are kind of behaving themselves um, and that, the, that you don't find birds with, a, with mixed plumage, you know, when you get very far away at all from this hybrid, from this hybrid zone. So what that seems to say is that there is, in fact, there's quite a bit of work done on this. And it's showing that by and large, these crows tend to mate only with other crows that look the same as themselves, but with a certain degree of flexibility, shall we say. And so, we get, so you get some hybrids between them, and those hybrids then themselves reproduce, and they, they reproduce with a carrion crow parent, then, then they'll be introducing some hooded crow genes in their offspring into what is otherwise a carrion crow population, and vice versa. So, so there, so there are there are definitely these uh, these intermediate cases. So, could we say in most cases it's in the interests of the parents to avoid hybridization because it would reduce their fitness? It, 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 I would say for the most part that is true. Yeah, and and I think we have a fair amount of evidence of that um, uh, because yeah because. I mean, let's put it this way, you know, a parent who mates, you know, a female mates with, with a male of the other species, if, her, if the hybrid offspring are unlikely to survive or aren't going to be very effective in reproducing because they're genetically just a bit messed up, then, uh, then basically she's not going to pass on her genes very effectively to future generations. If she, had, if she were carrying a mutation that told her, don't mate with that, you know, with that, anyone who looks different, you know, don't mate with hooded crows, whatever you do, um, then that mutation would have an advantage, right? Because the, because the offspring then would be, uh, they wouldn't be, had be a, a genetic mixture that, that had some, some survival deficit. Uh, and so those genes would be then propagated on into future generations and future, future, her descendants would be females that would inherit the gene saying, basically mate with mate with other carrion crows not with hooded crows ah great so, so carrying on the topic of uh, speciation so there's a common thing in the textbooks and when uh, i've learned about this the difference between sympatric and allopatric speciation uh, okay those are big big words most of most of your <laughs> won't necessarily be intrigued by them but go ahead sure what's what's your question so most of the examples of sympatric sympatric speciation that i saw 
to me felt a little bit like allopatric uh, speciation. So I'm thinking about uh, fish in the same lakes at different depths or insects in the same environment but living on different plants. I, to me, that feels a little bit like they're not truly in the same place. Okay, what's, okay, Am so I misunderstanding I, this? Uh, we, yeah, I think I would have a somewhat different way of putting it. Um, um, so let's, let's back up and just, you know, since you've used these terms, let's be, let's uh, be sure that, that uh, folks uh, who listen to this know what, what we're talking about. Um, Allopatric is just a, it's a fancy word from, from Greek roots that simply means in different places, different, different patria, or different territories or regions or homelands. That's where, where it really comes from, as in the word patriotic, your homeland, right? your fatherland. Um, okay, so allopatric means uh, popu would be populations that are living in different regions. Sympatric means populations living together in the same region. Okay, um, so, okay. So uh, most species of animals, I think, oh, most people will agree that we have an enormous amount of evidence for what's called allopatric speciation, which is the idea, like with the crows, that if you have populations from, uh, from an ancestor that are living in different regions, let's say Western Europe and Eastern Europe, and those regions have different environments and so forth, that these populations will tend to evolve. And if they're evolving independently of one another, they can become more and more different, more and more different, and eventually they become reproductively incompatible, and everyone would agree that they're species. Okay. So, that, so that, that's kind of the normal way. And then, then they expand their range, and there they are. They meet one another in Central Europe, and maybe they hybridize a little bit, or maybe they don't, depending on, on how, far, how far they've gotten in terms of their reproductive isolation. Sympatric speciation would refer to a case where you have an ancestor that splits into two descendant species without having been geographically separated from one another. Okay. And, um, and you mentioned a couple of, a couple of examples. There are you know, cases where they're supposed, they're supposed to have had um, two or more fish species coming from a single ancestral species within the confines of one lake. For example, um, the large, the large Rift Valley lakes in, in eastern Africa, um, and um, or another case that I'm particularly familiar with uh, because it deals with plant feeding insects is the apple maggot fly, in which a, a species of fly that um, normally used to uh, feed just uh, to lay eggs and develop just in the fruits of a wild plant called a hawthorn. Um, formed a kind of a race that uh, attacks apples, domestic apples, and which is now pretty much a, almost a different species, okay, because it, it basically mates at a different time and has a different timing of development. And so they, you know, and so that's called sympatric speciation because there's no indication that the the apple flies were, you know, geographically segregated from the from the, the hawthorn feeding ancestor. Um, and I would say that it is sympatric, even though they're on, they are coming to different kinds of plants now, and by and large, the apple flies don't go to hawthorn, and the hawthorn flies don't go to apple trees. So by and large, they don't tend to, and, and I should say that the males and females mate on the plant, right? Um, and so if males and females are just, uh, they're all going just, you know, if they're not switching back and forth between the two kinds of plants, then they don't meet one another, and so they are reproductively isolated, and they are you know, acting in, like independent species. So, 
I would say that it was that it's sympatric speciation because they didn't start out being segregated onto different kinds of trees. They were just all flying around in the same place and you had a mutation then that caused some of them right then and there in the same place to start being, to start, you know, moving of their own volition, so to speak, to this new plant, the apple tree, okay, uh, which might have been right next to the hawthorn trees, um, but, uh, but they just, for, because of some mutation that affected their preference for the odors of, uh, you know, of different trees, they just don't go to the hawthorn tree anymore, they go to apples. And so I, so it's sympatric in the, in the, you could say, yeah, they're occupying different spaces now because they're all going to one kind of tree versus the other kind of tree. But they evolved that that divergence. They, you know, they, they evolved that this that, that that distinction between the two of them right then and there in the same place. So that so 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 I would say that the process of speciation took place in the same in the same place. It was sympatric. It gave rise then to two um, to two kinds of organisms that are kind of segregating themselves into different parts of the, of the original space. I hope you found that interesting. If you'd like to hear more, watch this feed and I'll be uploading more soon. This has been Kobe's podcast. Stay safe.